<laughs> Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bond Daft Podcast, episode 10. Uh, we are now, we're going to be talking about the 10th James Bond film, funnily enough, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Stephen Barry here with the usual Bond aficionado, sitting in different order, which is really kind of like confusing me right now. And, uh, Gordon was not happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, this is the whole thing is just completely thrown off. I'm all good now. Even yeah, yeah he got promoted. I'm the one that I'm the one that got demoted. You know what? The way we are, the three of us are sitting on a couch with drinks. It, it, it's like we're at an old school house party. It's bringing me back to my student days. Uh, so yeah, Gordon here, Fran Murphy, and Steve. McCall. <laughs> oh my god! How many years has it been? <laughs> I know. I was like, I was thinking you're going to say something, so I was like, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you say whatever you're going to say, and I was like, I'll just finish it with your Nothing something. more than hello. <laughs> yeah. Yo yo yo. The four horsemen. Uh, yep yep uh, yep. So we're here for James Bond, the spy who loved me. Uh, before we get into that, though. Um, should we talk a bit more anything on uh, sort of our usual uh, no time to die update since the last one? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, I mean, I I I think I'm particularly excited about this one just because I'm a particular fan of Billie Eilish, who, as you'll all know, has been announced as doing the theme song this year, which is a particularly um, shrewd move, I think. It's a very from the producer. It says it's, a lot, isn't it? It really does. That's the thing that struck me most, as well as I mean, I I, I genuinely love her, but her album is just—it's a weird, dark mix of stuff that I love. But it's also the—it's what it actually says about the production about this particular film. I think it's on three counts, to be honest. Firstly, the fact that they're obviously going for the younger market. She is one of the most, if I, if not the most, listened to artist on Spotify, not just of her genre on the entirety of Spotify. She's also the complete antithesis of your typical sort of Bond girl. She's the complete opposite. You think Bond girl stereotypically. You think scantily clad, not wearing very much, etc. Her image is deliberately centred around her wearing sort of large, oversized clothes. It's kind of the kind of hip-hop style. Very, very stylish. But sort of not at all sort of sexualized or anything like that. Uh, she's, almost, she's almost almost kind of rebelling against that. Precisely. That sort of the way girls are marketed yeah, usually in which makes the pop a, industry. Exactly, which makes a huge statement. And just her style of music is completely opposite. Do you think Bond themes, again, you go sort of Tom Jones, Charlie uh, Bassey. Bassey. Even more recently, you've had people like Adele and Sam Smith, you know, the kind of folk that your mum listens to. Whereas... Billie Eilish is the complete of her style. If you haven't heard her at all, look her up on Spotify. She's brilliant. She almost uh, whispers. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. dark. It's that, it's almost like an kind of AMSR type, sort of dark sound effects and it's like an ambience music. Yes, sort of and I find that a bit listening to Hans Zimmer's stuff, who's been announced as the well the main composer. But the more I think about the Billie Eilish thing, the more intrigued I'm becoming. And I remember. There was once or twice they did change up with the theme song singers, like when when they got Wings to do Live and Let Die. Yes. nothing like that before with Bond. And they're know? the ones that stick out. They're the ones that you hear and go, "Oh my god, they're br-. they don't fade into the background the same way that a lot of the other themes that are sort of big belting outs anthem type things do." It also helped they had George Martin doing that score, so someone who was familiar with Wings and Paul McCartney was able yeah. to, was doing the actual composing of the score. It wasn't actually John Barry for that film. Yeah. Billie Eilish, so um, I, I'm I'm I really meant to listen to her before this. I just didn't get the chance, but I'm go- I'm gonna stick her on on Spotify. I love that sort of 
the description of her sounds like something I would like. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been aware of her. I haven't had any anything against her. I've I've been a. Do you know what I mean? I just haven't had a chance to put her on yet. Like, I, I, or I, it's not been memorable enough to me to to go and do it. I guess. But I did read about the whole. Um, she wears particular clothes, and there was something about a German magazine that posted some put something like a, a cover of her or something some fan art or a, something. A sort of illustration almost of her in slightly more revealing clothes than what she'd wear, and she went ape about it quite rightly she was furious yeah well it's kind of gone again yeah i mean her argument seemed to be it was that basically she specifically chose her as you say her brand or her look and i think i I think she maybe felt a wee bit bad for the fan because it was a a piece of fan art that was chosen so i think maybe there was a ended up where it was probably like everybody it was like an unfortunate series of events basically i don't think anybody meant to offend anyone no no you're right it, was, it wasn't deliberately antagonistic it just kind of and i think she said something kind to the fan as well afterwards I th- as far I would, as i'm aware i would imagine so yeah something like that but i suppose in terms of the the theme that's coming about it, it does depend on who she's paired up with in terms of the the score so is it did you say it is i hope it's Hans zimmer? zimmer so the the belly okay. Eilish thing really intrigues me the Hans zimmer idea really excites me and of course it's just intriguing because it's kind of at the 11th hour he's been drafted in and we'd heard it pretty much confirmed Dan Romer was going to be doing the, the soundtrack and he pulled out uh, after maybe like just a month later and now Hans Zimmer's involved and some of the I mean some of the music he's involved in is is real stellar stuff he even does like the Blue Planet documentaries that um, the nature documentaries I think was by the BBC that David Attenborough does and some of the music's like breathtaking there yes it and is and he did like the Lion King. He did. He did um, Inception. He did. He did Inception. He did Gladiator. Real varied did stuff. I think he did Pirates of the Caribbean. I did. Yeah, did, yeah he did. Yeah, that was one of his yeah. kind of earlier big massive things, wasn't it? I think that it was like a kind of a really like a popcorny type film. Did he do anything like that before Pirates? He probably did. Because Pirates was when so, he became such a huge. I feel like he became like a household name at that point. Everybody loved those films so much. Everybody kind of knew who Hans Zimmer was. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's one of those names. Like <laughs> almost like became a John Williams type at that point. The thing with Hans Zimmer this announcement it's uh, intriguing for me because he is obviously sort of synonymous usually with Nolan's films and he's not doing Nolan's film Tenet I think it's called that's coming out this summer uh, which is intriguing that, that, that something he's been then drafted in for this I don't know if something's happened off, you know, behind the scenes, or there's been a disagreement, or something, or if he's just been offered a whack of money more. Oh than, yes, yeah, yeah. And then when I, I heard that, I heard Hans Zimmer make a statement about how iconic John Barry was and what an influence he had on him, and that man, that just sold him to me, especially hearing that. So I, I even thought there was some bits of of Zimmer's music I was listening to recently, random bits, even reminded me of, like Barry's music in The Loving Daylights very orchestral stuff. I'm, I'm really genuinely excited about it. Yeah, definitely. On Billie Eilish, very quickly, the only thing I will say, um, and I think this shouldn't really be used as comparison, but the last time the Bond films really went quite experimental out there with something they weren't... It was Madonna, wasn't it? Uh, and oh. that's obviously when it was... It was You mentioned that, that Die Another Day, the scenes, you know, we've been showing Bond, uh, Brosnan kind of being tortured and things like that and then suddenly this disco-y theme tune in the background <laughs> is a complete juxtaposition so I'm hoping that don't do the same thing here 
Well, they do you not remember the? I think, yeah, I think the Madonna one was experimental. I also think Chris Cornell was quite experimental. I was thinking that, and you know, that was probably, and I loved that. I thought, I thought that was one of the best Bond themes ever. Actually, yeah, I think it was almost is the epitome of Bond theme. The epitome of a Bond theme, do you know what I mean? It's. Uh, I wouldn't say that. To I, me. I really think that some like, of John Barry's stuff is the epitome. On Her Majesty's Secret well, Service seems like the yeah. most traditional instrument okay. Bond theme you can get. Yeah, well, let, let's say outside of the, outside of that, do you know what I mean? Like it's probably you know, and maybe Live and Let Die. Do you know what I mean? There's a couple of kind of, there's a couple of them that just ooze that kind of charisma. Do you know what I mean? That charisma and yeah. kind of. Uh, there's an almost epic quality to them. I don't know, but but it's not it's not like Shirley Bassey kind of bombastic. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. There's a there's a there's a kind of a there's an energy, you know. And I'm hoping that this Billie Eilish one is like that. Okay, is there anything else we know that this film has there been any more announcements? I haven't spotted anything uh, yet. I think that no? might be it. Okay, uh, I suppose we should really start talking about Spy Who Loved Me or set this one up. Uh, this is obviously the tenth film uh, film released, as well as actually I think it was the tenth novel um, uh, by Ian Fleming. So I haven't, I'll confess, I haven't done much uh, pre-production uh, research for this one. So Gordon, you want to? I hand over to you for setting us up with uh, sort of the background in this film. Not a problem, not a problem. Um, budget first, what, $14 million, I think this it was. This is the, the most for that time as well. I think it was make or break time. I mean, we all agreed that maybe certain things went too far in The Man with the Golden Gun. Harry Saltzman sold his share in the company and Broccoli was going alone with Spy Who Loved Me. And I think it, he realised it was time to take a gamble. Interest was maybe waning in Bond a bit. They actually, so Pinewood Studios was involved again. They built their own special bespoke soundstage for Bond called the 007 stage. It was actually worked out while they started production for this film that they didn't actually have a soundstage big enough for the sets they wanted to make. And, you know, once we watch the film and, and we discuss it, we'll, we'll talk about just how epic the, the stages were. So they actually, they must have had, you know, a big enough budget or whatever, to actually build their own stage. This was such a, a big development at that time, in the late 1970s, 1977. So Broccoli went alone. Roger's back for his, his third film. Barbara Bach plays Agent Anya Amasova, otherwise codenamed Triple X. Then co-starring, we've got Kurt Jurgens, a German actor, as Stromberg. Originally, Blofeld was going to be the... Um, Bad guy, I think possibly because Spectre are going to be involved because of legal reasons they couldn't use the Spectre name. And we've got Jaws, the famous oh. Jaws, his first film, oh. Richard Keel. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm um, really looking forward to seeing oh, Jaws again. Is this the one that's got the the girl that? No. Jo- is this another? Is that another it's one? The second one, right? Yeah. That's okay. Because that's a little Mandela effect we can discuss. Oh, you've mentioned it before. Have I? Yeah, you mentioned that. You mentioned it before where the internet all remembered yeah. that suddenly or felt that they remembered that she had braces. Yeah, yeah I remember you brought oh, yeah. that up. Yeah, yeah. it's you know, so weird, isn't it? I know it was an intriguing point. I remember you brought that up. Um, now Lewis Gilbert's back as director. What was the last film he did? You only lived twice. You only lived twice. Nineteen sixty-seven. So ten years later, Lewis Gilbert's back in the fold. And, and kind of. Did he do any more? Yeah, he did. Well, he did Moonraker. May as well reveal that. So, um, he's. I think he's known as doing the big epic films. The Spy Who Loved Me is a big epic film. It's it's one of my again my childhood favorites. I saw this film from a very young age. 
and it was sort of make or break time. They need to reawaken interest in the franchise. They got change in writing as well. Uh, Christopher Woods was basically collaborating with Richard Maybam and Christopher Woods said one of the things he wanted to do now he was, I think he's English himself and he said I wanted to show Bond in this film to be very English, very smooth um, so it was basically him and Dick Maybam and then I think another big thing we'll see is the use of model work in this film Derek Meddings is, was the main kind of model scale model maker Plot-wise, what we're looking at, well, they wanted to have Spectre involved again because of various legal challenges by Kevin McClory. They realised the original treatment they had to change. So, um, you know, I've honestly not really thought about the plot until we came in here, so I'm just trying to like improvise because I've seen this film many times. But So thinking off the top of my head, uh, a British naval submarine and a... a Soviet submarine both disappear under mysterious circumstances. We almost see parallels here, by the way, with You Only Live Twice. Bond is sent out to investigate the disappearance of the British one. Um, Agent Triple X is sent out to find out about the disappearance of the Russian one. And it's discovered that I think it's a couple of scientists have developed some sort of submarine tracking system. And if that falls into the wrong hands, this tracking system, it could be sold to the highest bidder to you know, to hold people to ransom, or could even start a nuclear war, because these are two nu- nuclear submarines. So you kind of see parallels at the beginning of the film. You see Bond and Agent Amasova both um, sent to find out, and you know, what's happened to the disappearance of the submarines. And, you know, through this, Bond goes to Cairo, he ends up going out to Sardinia. I don't know, is that in Italy, near Italy? Yeah. And so this is a case of, again, Bond been sent out to stop Possibly Armageddon, possibly a nuclear war. It's big. It's it's an epic film. Do we know if uh, Ken Adam returned for this one? Yes, he did. Sorry, yeah, Ken Adam, by his famous large scale says, big budget again, fourteen million dollars. Yeah, I always find it quite interesting how the Bond villains want to set up massive auctions all the time, don't they? I mean, they. What was the last one we were talking about where it where he wanted to sell something that was actually quite good for the planet? What was oh, it? The Solex Agitator. Yeah. So that, yeah. yeah. I love watching these films and sort of it's like yeah. you're almost supporting the villain when yeah. you're thinking of the, the green energy. Yeah. Environmentalist, yeah. He would I mean if he if he'd succeeded, we would have no problems today. Do you know what I mean? No global warming at all. Wow. But instead they blew him up on an oil rig, ironically <laughs> enough. <laughs> Uh, okay. Of all places. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think we are ready to go. Um, this film. Uh... Oh, also, can I just say sorry? That was a great summary. Yeah, but Gordon, you know. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is the only one I've just improvised, and I hadn't even given any thought of before I, I came here. I've just that just shows that that's a lie. Well, it was finally knowledge. Yeah, it was crafted. Look at your notes here. Like ridiculous. Nice. <laughs> I don't use notes. Uh, I've never used notes in one of these podcasts. As if you've always got a script. Yeah. Always. Well, yeah, then we all do. We all do. It's, it sounds improvised, but we're just such good actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so this film obviously was a fourteen million pound budget, and it made was a hundred million dollars. Sorry, I know I did it as well. Uh, did, you, did you announce it? I can't remember how much. Fourteen million dollars. 
Aye, how much it made though? Oh, sorry, oh. commercial box office it was like 186 million or something. They are very successful. I don't well. That's an incredible return. I think this film is seen as one of the, like the, the. This is probably Moore's I think, most favourite film. I think yeah, this is the one was, that people say is probably his best. It was yeah. Most people agree this was Roger's best, and he himself has always gone on record saying this is his favourite as well. Yeah. So. I mean, think about that return. I mean, what? So what it's was about twelve times? Aha. Uh-huh. I mean. In today's money, like that would be like a hundred million film bringing in more than a billion, wouldn't it? Which is what some so, of yeah. the Marvel films are doing now. Is that true? Are they? Say- See, I thought their budgets were bigger than that. Well, their budgets are huge. I, I, I didn't mean in terms of the percentage. I meant the actual outcome. Or they're pulling in billions, but like imagine you could you could do that. I think some of the smaller Marvel films have pulled in quite a lot of money, haven't they? But I mean, that is an incredible return. That yeah. is an- unbelievable. Another final point, sorry, before we go and watch the film, is it's another film like the the big epic ones. It, it's very different from the novel. There was a novel called Spy Who Loved Me. For whatever reason, Ian Fleming had never granted the film rights for this, so they kind of had to make it very different. That's some... What? What? Uh, that's weird. <laughs> I'll get your, your novels on the shelf there. I'll mean, yeah. pull it out and we'll, we'll go through it in painstaking <laughs> detail after we film. This is going to be a 45-hour podcast. Before we start Moonraker in a couple hours. All right, then. Let's uh, go and watch the film. Order some food because I'm so hungry. Yes. Uh, yeah. We'll uh, come back to talk in spoilerific detail about the spy who loved me. I love that spoilerific. <laughs> Such a great word. Is it a real word? And we are back from watching The Spy Who Loved Me. I'll start with this one, gents. I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I think this is just a fantastic return to form for me, uh, I think. And... I, I like Lewis Gilbert's direction. I think he uh, has brought a kind of classical feel to the character. Uh, so, yeah, this this film has been up in my estimations. We were talking about this off air. Uh, in some ways, that the Live and, Let, Live and Let Die and a couple of other films maybe went down in my estimations when I watched them. This has actually went up. Um, as a kid, I don't, I don't remember loving this film. I thought it was fine. But, yeah, I actually really enjoyed this film. Great action scenes, some... some Amazing sets, fantastic locations, um, which are some of Ken, Ad- Ken Adams' best. You've got a great set, um, henchman and Jaws, villain, good story. Yep, really enjoyed this one. Guys, how, uh, what were you, uh, Gordon, your, your retake on the film, watching it again? Yeah, it's, it's like the perfect blend and one of my favourites of all time. And I think this was very much Roger's Goldfinger. And we did talk about the, the plot at times seemed a bit recycled from You Only Live Twice in a lot of ways, especially the way that the tank of the Laparis swallowing up the, the two, the Russian and the, the British submarines, which were presumed the, you know, the opposite. The British probably thought the Russians did, the Russians thought the British did it. So, you know, similar to what we got in that. But in a lot of ways, it's the perfect blend. The humour, uh, Moore's charm and whip. I think a, a very good uh, head villain with Stromberg and uh, maybe doesn't get the credit he deserves. Cut Jürgens, I thought he was great in the role. Formidable anyway and you know, excellent stunt work that. I still, every time I see it, that, that leap off the cliff on the skis, which was done for real, blows my mind every time I see it. And just to know what was involved, the stuntman 
Rick Sylvester got paid thirty thousand uh, dollars. I think the whole stunt cost about five hundred thousand dollars at the time. But uh, I mean, it's a breathtaking film. Always, I find it hard to pick faults with it. Really. Yep. Yep. I completely agree. Uh, Fran, you, your take on this film? Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, I didn't have memories of the movie outside of the, I guess, outside of the usual kind of iconic stuff like the submarine car and um, what Gordon mentioned about the whole skiing section and that amazing stunt and things like that. But I, I, I really, I mean, it, it's a funny one. We were kind of discussing this as the film was on and during a little break about the idea of suspension of disbelief and is that something believable and whatever. But I think, I mean, all Bond films are, are actually kind of ridiculous. All of them. Um, but they to a greater or lesser degree are successful in allowing us to suspend our disbelief about that ridiculousness. Um, and I think this film did really well with that um, where it actually had a whole section that I didn't remember that now probably would rank as one of my favourite kind of extended set pieces in Bond history which is that uh, section where the, the crews of the Russian, British and American submarines are released inside the tanker that they've been trapped inside with the ships and with Bond and Triple um, X, the uh, Russian agent, then go on. Well, she's she gets captured, doesn't she? Uh, so they're trying to get her back. But this whole scene of... It's almost like a war movie or something. It's It goes beyond... Like a one man fighting the, you know, fighting the bad guy. Scenes of the captain getting killed, the captain of the British sub getting killed, his interactions with the captain of the American sub. There's a little section where a lieutenant, British lieutenant, runs up with a couple of other guys and tries to take the bridge. Just fantastic stuff. Um, and, you know, it just it, it felt like a treat, actually, because it kept giving, like, I had forgotten with that whole set piece. I forgot the bad, the main bad guy hadn't even been caught yet, and Jaws was still out there. And then there was a whole other section after that that didn't feel, it didn't feel like we were tired. Well, I didn't feel tired of it at that point. I was ready for for more, you know, to see what what came next. So I just really, you know, I, 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 I and again, you know, with our criticisms of past Bond films about problematic stuff, um, uh, the way the way women are treated, a couple of small tiny things, I'd say, but on the whole. That was okay. Yep. Um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I, I really think it was infinitely better. I don't know why I don't remember it. I don't know why, but I, I, I actually would, I would watch it again. I'd, I'd add it to my. I'd probably watch this maybe once a year or once every couple of years, kind of films, you know. Yeah, completely agree, Steve. I am so full of chicken. <laughs> but beyond that I <laughs> you have to add context to that <laughs> we've eaten a lot of food over overdone the uh, the food the I'm bordering on coma somewhat <laughs> but I I really really enjoyed this this was a massive step up Man with the Golden Gun it just didn't I, I, it didn't quite bore me but it didn't draw me in I didn't feel particularly compelled by it this I mean, Gordon described in the preamble as epic, and that's legitimately the only word for it. It's huge. Everything is massive. It looks stunning. And that's that's the sets, and as I think we discussed during the film, the cinematography as well. Some of the, the wide shots, the use of silhouette against natural light. Um, it was just it was a beautiful-looking film. The use of music as well, and in a lot of cases, no music. 
they they were I've always thought with films it's using silence is a really brave thing to do because there's a a kind of compulsion when you're making any kind of media audio visual whatever you want to fill every second with some kind of excitement or sound because you're you're worried that the audience will switch off but this used sort of silence or lack of music really really well and it it kind of added to the impact uh, so yeah i mean in summary i suppose a beautiful stunning looking film with a funky 70s disco soundtrack which worked <laughs> and didn't work i yeah. suppose in equal measures yeah and you were saying about the silence yet and none more so than that stunt off the cliff oh that done was by real like i said by by rick sylvester the stunt man you know the silence and similar to let's say as well the dam at the start of goldeneye mm-hmm. and even like other more the more sort of drama scenes like when it's when bond accidentally reveals to anya that he was the yeah. man who actually yeah. killed her yeah. lover, who also worked, I think, for the KGB. And But they could have easily, at that point, when there's a twist brought in, this kind of dramatic, duh, duh, duh. sad music. Yeah. There's no yeah. music, and I think that allowed us to digest it more. Yes. Yeah, and, it, you know, and then there was the section where Bond is um, cuts off, well, the, the James Bond music comes in, and then he cuts off the feed to people watching what he's doing. Oh, I love that. And then that the music just stops so at the clever. same time. Yeah. So it's like it's like point. meta. It was it was meta. It kind of that may be that like I wonder if it's one of the kind of earlier uses of that in cinema. Like I don't. I mean, what's that? Nineteen seventy? What seventy seven? Like, can we think of anything else from before that? I mean, that was well, very like, a character's uh-huh. actions yeah. dictate this the abrupt stopping uh-huh. of the music. The soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, it was the audience is engaged. Yeah. In. It yeah. was great, and it was kind of shocking. I mean, and you know, there was a couple of moments in it. I mean, that was that 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 kind of got you to grab your attention, and then there was the section as well on the train where Jaws jumps out the cupboard. That petrified uh-huh. me. That was probably yeah, that, that was like that's horror that. there. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, it was a jump scare moment, but it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't cheap. It was, it was perfect, legitimate, and he, yeah. he looked scary. And you know, that's an, that's another thing you could say about the whole film is that it it grabbed your attention with either. Uh, either beautiful uh, shots of uh, exterior, lo- like outside locations, yeah. um, or sets. Uh, everything. It felt like every single frame of the film had something in it that you were, you were, absolutely, yeah, you were, you were, your attention was hooked. That's the perfect word for it. Yeah, I think most areas they nailed it. I think with from casting through to uh, the the screenplay uh, and and. There's not many moments or areas where I felt they they lacked. I think this this was a fantastic production overall. Um, let's take it from the start then. Let's do the pre-title sequence, um, which culminated in that fantastic stunt that you talked about little about Gordon. Um, but there was a bit before that though, wasn't there? There yes, was a bit where was... um, Triple X is in bed with yeah. her partner. Yeah, it's well done because you see a man, a woman, you know. From a slight distance away in a bed, and kind of man, kind of dark. Sure, you, you, and you see the, the body about to turn. You, you assume it will be Bond, perhaps, if you're seeing it for the first time. And it's, it's uh, the the guy who ends up dying, um, with Sergei Barsov, who's another KGB agent. That's well done. Yeah, but it's. I think it's that you expect that he's going to be the one who, because a little device goes yeah, off, and yeah. it's the KGB calling for for the agent and then he, he he gets up and goes off quite sad sadly or whatever and then she goes yeah. to answer the machine you know 
Um, but obviously they both are in the employ of the KGB, although it would seem that she's a bit more senior because he seems like he's just a, a guard, like a guard type character, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like part of a, like a soldier, essentially. Yeah, he was there for protection. The reason he got shot effectively is because he was one of the several sort of henchmen type yeah. lowered down soldiers that were sent after Bond. Yeah. Like the subversion of the, the trope that sort of the, uh, you know, the secret agent luring usually Bond luring a woman and she's the eye candy of the scene but as you mentioned uh-huh. Dan it's 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 subverted it it's the secret agent as the female and, and that means the eye candy I suppose was the male who's yeah. you know you know had a Sean Connery's chest hair I think yeah <laughs> um yeah I mean I, I like that I like that I think it was very interesting that that was present in a film from 77 do you know what I mean but then again uh, Star Wars came out that year too and you had the uh, Princess Leia who was not a princess that needed rescuing either. Um, when was it Alien came out? Oh, was that a few years? 79. So Ripley, another. You know, so this was starting to appear in cinema then, wasn't it? This idea of um, realistic portrayals of people, um, that that men could be cowardly or, or not particularly tough or not particularly important as well as, you know, and, and that women could be the protagonist or have a lot more agency. Yeah, in, yeah. in a movie. Yeah, I think that we've covered it. Normally, um, we always have a section where Bond is dated. We will bring it in. I think for one, like an area where I do think it's dated. But the politics of this film, I, I love. I, I have no issues with, and that's refreshing for me to say that. I agree. Ten yeah. films in, and I didn't find something that really embarrassed me or made me cringe a little. Um, so that is one of the areas that I really like this film actually and um, we were talking about the pre-title sequence um to come back to that um obviously i suppose it is what, what else happened in that sequence well, i like gogol's office I, I like i love throughout the film the parallels between the kgb and mi6 and how they work things and how they respectively send their best agents out i.e bond and triple x but you compare like M's plush office in London to Gogol's, it's like it just looks like the coldest room. This He's big got, chamber, it's like, it's like this dungeon, <laughs> tower in a castle type thing. Yeah, the contrast, and again, what a stunning set by Ken Adam. And you know, the budget showed in a lot of the sets, the decor, and you know, and in so many, it showed you, you know, a lot of sets which were meant to be in the Cairo setting, and then you know, and like that, I presume that was somewhere in Russia. It was stunning sets, and that you know, that and that was just you know, before the actual, you know, the song and you know, as in the pre-title sequence I know, I loved it um, before we got into the song, yeah, let's talk more about that stunt, I mean, how epic was that? And again it was not, like the man with the golden gun we mentioned had uh, that fantastic sequence with the car but it was completely ruined by this sort of slide whistle um, kind of adding its campness to the entire sequence, which ruined the whole stunt but then this, the exercise restraint let no, there was no music, and it was just the 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 shot of the the skier like well, Bond, um, just falling hundreds of feet, and then the music kicks in eventually. I suppose the... I have to sort of sort of mention that prior to the the stunt itself, the jump was the ski chase, which was accompanied by that slightly jarring seventies disco. It doesn't work for me that music. That's actually my main issue with the film. Actually, yeah. the only issue I really have. Is, and it comes in quite frequently, so it is I mean, it was unfortunate. A, I get it, it was the 70s, it was a style at the time, disco was huge and Bee Gees and all that kind of stuff. But that particular chase scene, 
that I almost lost the film for me at that point because I was like, no, this isn't going to work. And then, obviously, the music cuts and he jumps off the cliff and it just goes on. It's one of these shots. It's a, it's one sort of locked, solid, long shot of him just falling and it looks like he's about to fall for his death. And then that parachute comes out just as the music kicks in. It's, it's beautifully yeah. timed. It's perfect. And that part of the Bond theme that played and just the, the, the kind of Britishness, tongue-in-cheek, the Union Jack parachute. And like you said, yeah. that great ski chase. I just love at the very start, after Bond leaves the log cabin, um, it's the first kind of action sequence showing you, you Rog close up as Bond, and just he looks so nonchalant, just kind of smirking, going on <laughs> happily in the skis. It's just pure Roger Moore's. I love it. Um, i got to say, I kind of disagree with you guys a bit about the, the theme there, um, which corrupts up a couple times. I, my, my brother's got the soundtrack. Um, it's Bond 77, it's called, I think, because it was made in 1977. Yeah. I quite like it. I think it kind of fitted the time and it works well with action sequences. I don't, again, you know, I've got a different perspective, possibly, um, to some or all of you guys haven't seen it at such a young age, but I've got no problem at all with that music. I've got to say, there's actually a Bee Gees song that sounds kind of similar to it in some <laughs> ways, maybe. I don't know if you're getting a Bee Gees vibe off it, maybe. That's but, exactly the vibe but I'm getting, yeah. I, I like the synths and everything. I think it works quite, and it works well later on when we hear the theme when he's underwater and the, you know, the Lotus when it turns into a submarine. Yeah, I mean, I get it, and I, I don't hold it, um, you know, it's it's a, it's a slight down, mark it down a little on it, but it doesn't also, it didn't ruin my, my appreciation for the film. It was a, a thing I, I noted in my head, but um, because I, I don't think it works. I think there could have been better music, but at the same time, it is, this is, they're entrenched in the 70s at this point, and it's just that the style, you know, Roger Moore's wearing flares, all that sort of stuff. It's just part of the, the makeup of that time, and, and that that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, it, it is the only thing that I didn't quite enjoy as much. On the actual theme song, Carly Simon, uh, so that was the, the, the essentially the next part as well. Yeah, I like that. Uh, um, I think this is the first one they've. It's the the name of the song isn't like the Spy Who Loved Me, isn't it? Yeah, the the line is in the song. The title is in the song, but it's, you're right. It's not the the name of the song. Yeah, and it's so perfect because you can apply the the wording the Spy Who Loved Me to. From like Anya's perspective towards Bond, or even towards Sergey, who you know yeah. who died. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I was the trying to think she originally loved. Who is that? What is who is it referring to? Yeah. Is it ambiguous? And I quite like that actually. That is a good point. Yeah, which spy loves uh-huh. who? Because yeah. they're both spy. Yeah, that is it works really nicely. Do yeah, you know the, oh, I was just going to say about the music in general. Um, that it was interesting because there was some really good. Uh, there were some really good moments with the music with references to classic Bond themes, uh, callbacks to previous films in terms of the music that was we heard. I actually find the title song to be quite boring, I suppose. Really, I mean, it, it was good. Uh, I'm not saying it was a bad song. It wasn't It wasn't a, a Live and Let Die or that's Casino Royale yeah, style actually, actually, song. I, I do agree with that. To be fair. Um, but that's not to say that it wasn't good. I did think that there was some fantastic bits of music in it. On the whole, I would say, such as uh, some of the scenes in Egypt uh, in the desert where they were. But after that crazy bit of music, because there was a bit where they were in a van and it was all broken and, and it was kind of bouncing along over a stony part of the desert and the music was just terrible. It was like carry-on music. But then right after that, you had this really... Uh, 
really kind of slow string like music that I was came meant in. To look up what that was. That is a that's an actual classical piece. Yeah, is that not from Lawrence of Arabia? I that's don't know if it's what the I, th- main I thought theme. it was the Lawrence of Arabia theme. So that's that would, what kind of stuck in my that head. That would be an yes. apt reference then to have that exactly, in there. Because it was strolling through yeah. the desert on a camel or whatever. And then yeah, prior yeah. to that in the underwater uh the underwater sort of um layer scene you had air on a G string played as the shark was yes. yeah. um taking a chunk out of Thingy's assist. What's his name? Stromberg. Stromberg's assistant. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, it works. It's it's not supposed to be a nice scene because at the end of the day, it's a woman getting eaten by a shark. Chuck's but the music was yeah. exactly the music was beautiful. It was kind of just, it just it worked. Yeah, and let's yeah. just say as well. I mean that John Barry wasn't available for this film. This was Marvin Hamlish, who'd never been involved in Bond before. It's quite it's quite diverse. I really liked his music on the whole. Yeah, and he made good use of the Bond theme, like his own version. Yeah. He did bring it up today. I liked the use of you know the sense that in some ways the disco sound works. And I think as well it gets out, he gets away with it because the kind of disco sound it suits the more light hearted nature of Bond by this point with 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 Moore playing the character. Do you know what's interesting though? What we're seeing here, I think my theory about this is that with Gordon, Gordon, you are undeniably a super fan of Bond, and the rest of us are. Uh, casual fans of Bond because we all like Bond. Yeah, uh, we've all seen it and we all enjoyed it. We don't hate Bond or dislike it or are bored by it or anything like that. And I think with casual fans, it's more cyclical, so we might notice things age more. And I find that about things that I like, I won't notice that it's aged. Things that I really love, I won't notice that it's uh, that maybe it's not cycled back into being in fashion again. There probably will be Bond films that are that year on year and year out. The music in them, or the the way they dress, is becoming more relevant again, and then it goes out of fashion again, and it, and it will cycle round, and that goes from the sixties all the way up to the late, you know, in the, into the nineties and even the two thousands. Because, uh, no doubt, something from like I, I still think Chris Cur- the Chris Cornell theme from Casino Royale would be relevant now, but it may not be in ten years' time. It's yeah, I mean that <clears throat> is the danger with using cultural references and stuff that is kind of cool. At the time, I mean, I suppose the stuff we're saying in the preamble about what they're doing with the new film is particularly cool and cultural and relevant right now. People watching No Time to Die in 20 years' time will probably look at them and go, oh, that's so fast. Yeah, what was that song you mentioned that people looked up that they were laughing at now that that we all knew? Um, Yeah, um, All Star by Smash Mouth, which from what I gather among the kids is a... It's a meme, effectively. It's taking the piss out of. <laughs> and it's a shame because I loved that song when I was about 15. So I still do, actually, but that's when it came out or whatever. But, I mean, that's that's exactly The audience is going to the cinema in 1977 to see this film will have heard that disco soundtrack and gone, oh, wow, it's cool. This is what we eat. This is the, this is the stuff that's cool right now. Yeah, that's completely true. Yeah, you have to do, take into account the era of when it came out. Yeah. Um, and that's, I suppose, what we are doing. And giving some praise on that, especially, Gordon, you can pr- probably appreciate it more. Um, but, but, yeah, yeah I, to- I totally... I can't argue with Fran's point there at all, but you obviously, you know, being a long-term real... Bond's huge super fan, you know. Yeah, I do view things in a different way. I suppose that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast. I, uh-huh. I, I see your point there exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm like that. The Star Trek project, me and Steve did, in particular. Um, I I felt a few times that I had to be very conscious of the fi- of the fact that a film maybe came out in 1984 or 19 19- sorry 1982 or 1996 or whatever, because in my mind I was I was see it still seemed quite modern and new to me, whereas. To Steve, 
he, you, I'm sure you probably noticed. Oh, that's dated a bit, and I think that's maybe because because the perspective's different from me on the on the Bond side of things. I can I can see that a bit more, I suppose. Whereas I think with Gordon, like you, you, you Bond to you is analogous to Star Trek with me. I think You're probably right, and and probably by the time we get to Octopus and a view to a kill, um, because of that, you know, I wouldn't notice. Roger's age as much really as you guys and I'll be like, oh, that's fine and by the way I'd like to be you know be like that when I'm you know what fifth yeah seven fifty eight but yeah you know, yeah it's insane actually because he's forty nine or fifty at the point of this film the actor he's only third of eight seven films yeah seven films isn't it? seven third of seven films he's not even halfway through his tenure as Bond but he is nearly 50 well there's hope for us all I mean think about it if, if, if Roger Moore can be a charming debonair kind of you know well dressed char- just I don't know just keeping the keep, keeps it going yeah there's no one liners I think he, he he really struggled with he pulled them off so well I, I loved him you know like and I think this was um, there was a throwback to this I mentioned in Quantum of Solace with, with Daniel's Bond um, when Shandor's holding on to his tie knocks him off and goes what a helpful chap you know just that's just like what, that was the first example that came into my head you know he, he pulls off the one liners so well but it's not like it's not like overly cheesy the way a lot of Golden Gun was which you guys agree Aye, with that's a good point to talk about the sort of tone of this film and the writing I think you're right there, it just shows you the difference when you've got a different but um, sort of production crew, you've got a different director and different writers doing it, and what their take on it. Uh, Lewis Gilbert clearly has a bit more of a epic, is the word you use when you describe his films. It's from You'll Love Twice and This. His was the biggest sets, the biggest budget for the for the sets, um, and all of the sleaziness that Guy Hamilton clearly brought into. And I'm not dissing Guy Hamilton's film. I think his take on some of Gold, Gold, uh, Goldfinger is obviously one of the best. Bond films, we've rated it so far the highest as well, but the other films I think have aged poorly because of his humour and Tom Mankiewicz's humour as well as the writer and that sort of like overly silly and cartoonish uh, humour that I uh, just didn't resonate as well with and I think this film has made me um, kind of I look back at Live and Let Die and I always want to downgrade it a little because of how much I really enjoyed this film. It's, it's a strange yeah. attitude. Yeah, were, I'm getting, sorry, Steve. So there were little sort of, there were elements of sort of sleazy parts in it, but they weren't <laughs> played for comedy as much as some of, as some of the, the sort of previous films, like um, when they boarded the submarine and the American um, pervy captain mm. from to Triple X, oh, you could use the shower in my quarters and all that stuff. And then when she is in the shower, and the private walks in and does that kind of classic comedy double take of Whoa, oh, cartoon <laughs> eyes. Yeah, I take it back. You're right. Do you know, <laughs> it was it was thirty seconds, and that was they obviously thought right, we'll get that humour in there. You know, I, I, keep those I, th- I think that was on. a misstep by the director. Right? I reckon because because we got to see that. Did we get to see that twice? Because we put it back a wee bit, right? Not deliberately. Yeah, but but it was good we got to see it twice because I reckon. The captain was saying to use his shower because he was concerned that if she was out among the crew, that something bad might take place. You've read into that. I didn't get the film telling us that. I just thought thought he liked her and and his... That was just the way that he said, no, I really think you... She said something about... It was on on his second line that it came to me because I thought... Because he's like... 
you're welcome to use it. And she said, I don't want any special favors. And he's like, he says, what was it he says? Because he says something says, like, all the same. It might really be better if I did. It might yes. be better if you uh, did. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think as well, maybe it's maybe, it's rather than being overly sexist, it's maybe shown these guys have been on a submarine for a long time that, you know, that they're, they're not amongst any other women. It's to show how, you know, they're not used to having And then when the guy trip. comes in later, he does exactly what the captain thought he was going to do by staring through the, do you know what I mean? Through the yeah, curtains. I mean, he did do that, but I didn't. I didn't get your reading of it that he was looking out for her just because of him herbing around all these guys. It was just purely. No, I, get, I, I, get, I, I get. I get. Fran, I think I see who's come. From. Fair play is an interesting person. Well, it's it's I not think. very well. It's not very clearly signalled. I don't think it, it's kind of ambiguous. I think that's the problem with it. That's why I think the director could have done better there. But it wasn't deliberately played for obvious humour. No, yeah, it yeah, wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. Kind of it. Like, in yeah. previous films, it, it would have been done. If it was with humour, I would be with you guys on it. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. There wasn't a laugh there. It was a. It was kind of a, oh. Yeah. You I know, mean, uh, that's the thing about this. We're talking about a very, kind of, it's a small thing, really, and that's where we note it being uncomfortable, so-called, but... But I didn't think it was uncomfortable. That's the thing. This is normally the the part of the podcast where we'd be talking about some real serious, problematic issues that that other films have have done. We could reference some interesting ones. I I, I feel like this is it's little in comparison, and that's why I enjoyed it. Well, see, um, with Honor Majesties, I mean, I loved that one, right? I loved that film, and I loved this. And there are two elements, two very similar uh, threads running through these films that are Bond meets someone who is his equal, yes, right? Yeah. And what you what you find there is that it, there, is that, that con- it creates conflict between the two. There's different reasons for that. There's different reasons for it. Um, but in this case, obviously, there's conflict that it develops. She's, she's not willing to just lie down and roll over for Bond. Bond has to try and kind of... Bond has to try and... Uh, and win win her over, and it's more honest. It's 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 not. Uh, I think we referenced this a few minutes ago. It's not the film isn't smutty, corny. Um, it's not like that. It's it's more subtle. It's you can tell that they that they like each other, but they're mm-hmm. but they're both professionals, and and it's not. It takes a while for it to to get there, and it's earned. And then later on, she finds out that Bond killed her lover. And yeah. the thing with Honor Majesties as well is that you can tell, maybe less so in this film, but in Honor Majesties, you can tell Bond admires his counterpart enough to want to marry her. Do you know what I mean? Like, but he, he, he admires her completely. But in this film, I think he, I think he does as well to a certain extent. Not so much, but yeah, it's not developed as uh-huh. much. I mean, he's not yeah, in love with her the same way. But isn't it interesting that the the, the marriage is referenced? Yeah, yeah, that's really <clears> good. That, that's yeah, well yeah. done. You can see even Roger Moore's Bond is visibly sort of like disturbing what she's just said is is very well done and it's good and like I said and that you know it, it shows against the same character the continuation and just to touch on what you were saying Fran about um, you know Anya being like Bond's equal and all that and him kind of you know getting close to her it, there was a novelisation of this film after it came out it was written by Christopher Wood who, who you know was part one of the co-screenwriters and in the book, it, uh, he made comparison between Anya and Tracy quite a few times, mm-hmm. and he actually towards the end, it was talking the first, the like, uh, through Bond's like in first person and how he viewed Anya and how 
he actually had quite a kind of deep love for her and he, he was basically saying this was the first woman since Tracy that he really felt something strong uh-huh. for and you wonder you know it, that was kind of there was good great chemistry between the two of them in the film anyway if, if it wasn't quite that you know I mean I reckon if Lazenby was still playing Bond through right to this one I could you could you could maybe believe it more if it was written like that um, although I, I'm going to say I don't think I think that there may be there were a couple of very minor tonal moments with Anya that I think didn't ring true with the character. So there were moments when I was thinking to myself. I mean, I've I've we've all met lots of women in our lives. We've met women who are uh, strong characters lots of times, and uh, you know, been in lots of different situations with them. Um, there was a couple of times where Anya displayed vulnerabilities that I thought were a little bit a little bit strange given who and what she was. Do you mean like with Jaws on the train? No, I mean I I would have displayed bloody vulnerability with Jaws on the train, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Anybody would have bonded, do you know what I mean? Everybody did, the van displayed vulnerability when it was ripped apart, do you know what I mean? The shark, for God's sake do you know what I mean? It was was like when they were on the boat and she says, she says, it's getting a bit cold, right? Right, And then she talks about survival training in Siberia and I'm thinking the hell are we talking about cold in Egypt for then? And but it's not just that. It's 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 that it's almost as if the person writing the script couldn't quite fully get rid of the idea that a woman would say something like that. Do you know what I mean? In a circumstance where they didn't have a a, a, a coat on or, or or a jumper, and it was it was getting towards night, they couldn't. That a professionally trained agent who had trained in Siberia to deal with the cold still would complain about that. But it was written in such a way that it, it it was a segue into the conversation, and I understand that. I understand was, what the function was. It's a bit lazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that's I, interesting. I never but it's up on that, very but... subtle, and it happens a few times. It yeah. happens a few times in the film. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, but it's fixed to a certain extent, or not fixed, but it's balanced out by a bit where, like, where um, Bond admits to killing her lover, and she says, well, after this mission's over, I'm going to kill you. And it's like, there you bloody go. That's what a real human being would say if they were confronted. That's what Bond would say. If you're confronted with the person who's murdered your lover, you're going to, you know, someone who's got the steel to be a secret agent is going to say that. I was actually happy about that because in previous Bond films, I get the impression that even, you know, Bond could have murdered her lover in cold blood uh-huh. and the girl would still have pounced on Bond, yeah. given the opportunity, even if she knew that or whatever. The fact yeah. that she did turn it, she was... She was totally into him. Then yeah. she discovered that she'd killed that Bond had killed her lover, and she did legitimately go right. I hate you know. I am going to kill you, and you could see that hatred. Yeah, and yeah. that was that was refreshing. I was, now, I was really happy about that. Now, this is what we're discussing here. I suppose is like a is like a a, a balance, right? I think the realistic balance would is never quite hit. It's either one too. It's either too far one way or too far the other. It's either compensating too much, or or it's it's. It's it's being lazy about things and and adding vulnerabilities that shouldn't exist. So I would have been equally kind of, I would have I've been put off, I suppose, even by subtle things. I mean, say she had been rather than steely and determined and and hateful in that moment. Let's say that throughout the film she had been churlish and rude, permanently to Bond all the time or something like that. I would have seen that as lazy writing as well as the as what I've seen with the kind of. With the vulnerabilities being thrown in there, yeah. Um, yeah. but I think, I think they got very close. I still think Honor Majesties was the closest we got to a stoic, realistic 
counterpart. Yeah, I think Barbara Back's great in this. And you were saying about her been stealing the term. The, the one, maybe if I could say, like, a slight weakness, even and this is before, you know, she found out about Bond murdering, not murdering, but, you know, defending himself, killing Barsov. But, you know, early in the film, there, there was times it felt like she went, she could go from being very kind of steel and determined and a bit cheeky to Bond to suddenly being overly friendly. She went from light to dark a couple of times a bit too quickly. As soon as, as, soon as that meeting with Gogol um, and when it was revealed that, that Bond and her would be working together, she suddenly in the train seemed a lot friendlier. And, you know, I felt a, swi- a switch had been flicked, you know, mm. which maybe didn't sit too well with me. But, you know, on the whole, I thought she was really good. I thought, and the, the, remember the meeting, of course, and it's in Cairo when... Um, of course, the whole MI6 office set up there, and Bond meets Gogol. Remember, they found they try they first suspect Stromberg has been the man behind um, stealing the tracking system or you know stealing the submarines. When there's some kind of stolen document, and Q zooms in on it, and the it's like a monitor, unlike the one we're looking at at the moment in Steve's like spare room here. But anyway, like they zoom in on it, and uh, there's a slight logo. Like left on underneath whatever was photographed, and it says you can pick out the words auditory, and it it's basically part of Stromberg Marine Laboratory, the a part of the logo of that, but it just comes up auditory, and it seems a bit kind of naive. Like the head of the KGB, Google, it goes auditory. What is that? You would think he would he would maybe think he would maybe think well, maybe that means lo- that's laboratory. And there's a bit covered <laughs> up, you know. That seems a bit amateurish for the head of the KGB. Um, what do you think about the whole thing of like him and? M joining forces, you know, MI6 and the KGB joining forces, I mean... that Considering previous Bond films where Russia's been the enemy, I know that was obviously Cold War 60s, that was the deal, it does, it's qu- it was quite a change to see the Russians being on side and actually being the Allies along with the Americans in this one. And, I mean, again, because we're watching all these films in such sort of a short time frame, years and years will have passed serving reality since the the Cold War ended and the Russians wouldn't have been seen as the enemy that they were at the time of those films. So that that was interesting to see. And I think it only really jarred slightly because we were watching all these films quite close together, so it only feels like a few weeks ago that the Russians were enemy number one and all of a sudden they're best mates. Yeah, that was interesting. I like that. Is it much more it was an inclusive film in a sense? I think, do you not think Gogol is is ahead of the KGB, but he's a very likable character. Yeah. He was he seems yeah. You'll get to like him as you see him in other films as well. Um I'll I also find it fascinating with the Russians how prior to Chernobyl taking place, Soviets were always seen as as in a sense kind of equals to the United States, like an equal enemy, um, capable, well-presented, pretty good tech. I mean, you see that in the Bond films. Um, they are they seem fairly they seem fairly competent in how they operate. And then afterwards, after that, you start to see, after Chernobyl, certainly, and after the fall of the Soviet Union, you start, when we started to find out more about them, you start to see the, the kind of broken down aspect Things aren't quite, you, you know, they're not they're not really up there the same way. You wouldn't see a, a character like Google after, uh, I don't think. Um, I really don't think you would. I mean, Goldeneye is a good example of that, isn't it? I was just thinking, I was trying to think of the characters in Goldeneye. Urimov, General Urimov. Just yeah, corrupt. Just after the Cold War kind yeah, of ended. Corrupt, um, incompetent, easily bought. 
I suppose that's what corrupt is, but um, <laughs> yeah, allow me just to be completely redundant. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's weird with these podcasts with the Bond films because some of them I don't feel like I say very much, and then there's others where I just can't stop talking about it. But I, I, there's no, so much I, to talk about in this film. You're making up for me and my sore tooth. That I, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm. Quieter that's the yeah, that's the tooth. That is actually like, easing wait, a bit. Like, um, if, if it's not going great at the dentist, you'll see if they can give you some kind of oh. metal teeth implants or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jaws. Next podcast, Steve is just Jaws. <laughs> so we've actually got Jaws on the bikes show. as if we say the wrong thing. It might not be the most comfortable thing to listen to. It's just crunching metal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> some of those radio dramas. Steve's eating a car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is a good segment. Why don't we talk about Jaws? I was going to say, yeah, yeah for a, a villain with absolutely zero dialogue he was brilliant uh, yeah he didn't have any dialogue did he he didn't yeah. speak and all, how Stromberg said were they, the two, were they the two on the train he just nodded he didn't say yeah <laughs> that's probably like him ma- making a speech <laughs> you know? that's, that's what he'd do if he was best man he would just nod <laughs> see the thing is well I don't want to say too much about Moonraker until we got into this but I preferred Richard Keel's performance as Jaws and this I think he was quite menacing all the time he really was like we've mentioned the scene on the train but any time you saw him you felt the fear. Unfortunately, Moonraker, I'm afraid, doesn't do quite the same with Jaws. There's a bit of a tonal shift in how they write Jaws um, in, in the next film. But this one, I'd forgotten actually how imposing he was. Um, because the last one I'd watched was Moonraker like, from when I before had done this project. And yeah, he's like the, the, we, mo- we mentioned the jump scare moment when he's in the, the cupboard. It was fantastic. I love little details, things like during the fight sequence with um, Bond, he bites into an entire mat, mat piece of me- like wood, <laughs> yeah. like for well, just just to, almost just to impress, yeah. like, just to scare Bro, Bond. Yeah. Bond tries to hit him with it, and then he takes it and bites it. Yeah. <laughs> I killed a couple of seconds where Bond could have got a punch. Yeah, Bond was probably yeah. just looking, thinking, "Holy, oh holy fuck! God, yeah. This guy's eating the train." You know. I know Although Bond's obviously quite a competent fighter, you know, you can tell he he really is struggling against Jaws, and he's look how big Richard Peel's hands look when they're up against like Moore's neck, you know, is is incredible. I don't know if that was kind of enhanced. Can I just say just did you guys notice anything unusual about Stromberg in this film? Any kind, you know? Oh, you pointed like a, something a henchman, out. A henchman with a deformity. Not a henchman, a, like a main villain with a He had like a, a webbed hand. Oh, yeah, well done, yeah. Almost like, obviously, a, a fish having a sort of, or a duck having webbed feet. I did not notice. I must have looked away, I think. <laughs> you, there was only one point, briefly, there was, it was towards the end. I know you pointed it out when, was he on the phone or something? Can you tell me? Uh, well, the bit I noticed it, and I had heard people talking about it, but maybe because I never saw it in Blu-ray, I couldn't quite notice it. It was done very subtly, but you see when Bond arrives in the little jet ski into his Atlantis space, and Stromberg says, I've been expecting you. Stromberg's like looking at a CCTV monitor, and you see his hand, yes. and you see clearly the the web between the, yeah. the fingers. Where that, did, was that the bit you noticed I'm that? pretty sure it was. Yeah, towards the end. Yeah, yes, Yes, it was. I, think, I, I just... I, I just feel like we have Jaws is rattling around my head. I just feel yeah, like I feel like there's a couple idea. of more things to say about yeah, Jaws. Okay, like, let's go back to Jaws see, talk about Stromberg. he's like a supernatural character in a sense because he's like Baron Samady, except unbelievably terrifying. Just the the size of him, the fact that he, as Gordon pointed out when we were watching the film, he seems to teleport from place to place. He, when the lights go out and they come back on, he's gone. I mean, how can a guy that size move that quickly? 
crushed by masonry stones, gets out in two seconds. You know, he's like ripping, thrown from a train and electrocuted as he's thrown out of the train as well because he hits a wire. Yeah, and he's down by his own van, but yeah. Daniel's at the controls yeah. and yeah. into the wall. A van that he ate. <laughs> just a few minutes before, right? Um, I mean, gets thrown into the the the, the villains thing and kills the shark. With it, bites the shark to death. The shark he eats the shark, right? That's I mean, you know, usually it's the other way around, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's a lot of. Um, I'm going to say there's a lot of turning the tables uh-huh. in this film. And uh-huh. Man versus Shark was one of the more unexpected. Yeah, I, the way this was uh, there, like they couldn't get Spielberg. Apparently, we forgot to mention that Spielberg was at first. Um, they were trying to get Spielberg to direct this film during all the production troubles with different directors and different screen uh, screenwriters. Maybe this was them. He was, I think, doing Jaws at the time. Maybe this is their sort of like, well, f you then. <laughs> Do you know what? What I find really interesting about this whole thing, right? And we've talked about this, Steve. Steve and Barry, I'll say, because there's two Steves, and, and sometimes I don't make that clear on a film referring to. But there's a thing that Steve and Barry has discussed a few times about. Oh, how do these henchmen? No, well, how do the guards get hired? By the by, the bad guy. Like, how, is it like on online job boards or something? Like, how do they? What would the life of a, a guard or an employee of these people be like? Right? Imagine it's a magazine or something. Yeah, like that. they'll subscribe. Yeah, to or henchmen monthly. Yeah, I. They get job postings nobody else would ever take. Really dangerous or really boring or whatever. But it's the henchmen that interest me because if you look at Jaws and what's his name, the main guy. Stromberg. Stromberg, right. Stromberg and Jaws. It doesn't explain how they know each other, right? How did Jaws end up with those teeth? Like, how did... (laughs) Well... Like, how did they meet? How did did Jaws, without speaking and without having seeming to have any social ability at all, like, realise and think, oh, I'm going to pair up with a Stromberg guy who likes fish? (laughs) Uh, You know? (laughs) How did that happen? If you advertise it for a henchman and that turns up, you go, okay, yours. But Jaws, I mean, imagine Jaws as a child, like... Like a little child who like just ripping everyone's toys apart and all that, you know? well, <laughs> thrown out of school. Like, like they try and punish him with the belt or something like that would have been in the back of the day. And he, yeah, he just grabs it off them and bites it. You know, rips know, it off. You would, you'd be really interested. Like, Remember, I talked about the novelization of this film, which Christopher Wood wrote. You know, the, about the film he wrote. Um, it gives you a, a big backstory to Jaws and why he had metal teeth. You'll probably find it quite comical, but quite sinister. It scared the shit out of me when I read it. But apparently, I think. Jaws, he ended up somehow this kind of hitman for hire. I think earlier in his life, he was just like this kind of rabble rouser and like a crazy student at one point, and he got in with the wrong crowd and he ended up, um, but his human, superhuman qualities were used to advantage, like by first, like as a sportsman and other stuff, and he became part of like these kind of anarchists that caused riots and stuff like that, and the police. Um, I think he was meant to be Polish, and the, the Polish police like knocked his teeth out because he missed, you know, you know, this is like corrupt police, like actually knocked his teeth out in some padded room where and nobody knew about it. And then somehow Stromberg heard all this, that how, what a great kind of hitman this guy was and took him on. And then the novelization, again, there's a really dark backstory about Stromberg because you must wonder, and I think, you know, the likes of Q says, oh, he's the richest man in the world, Carl Stromberg. You know, you wonder how, how he became rich. And there's a whole backstory that, there's different things, but he, um, he had a kind of illegitimate um, sort of like funeral service, like some small business where he would like secret, him and his men would secretly steal the jewellery of the people that were getting cremated at his like cremation parlour and like melted it down. All this, all this you know, it's, it's actually, the novelization is actually very dark compared to the film, but it's, 
it's really if you can think of the film, um, but with the characters a bit more backstory and you know practically no humour in it you know in terms of like Bond's one line it's like more Fleming's Bond but written in Christopher Woods style but I mean I'd, mm. I'd recommend reading it there's one to Moonraker as well there's then John Gardner did License to Kill and Goldeneye novelizations, but good reading it just reminded me we've kind of talked about it but the dark tone thing I, I actually thought the, the, the ending of the film might have had a dark ending in the sense that she actually would try and kill Bond and I was trying to say the that would have been better or not. It probably went with the safest option, which is he just, you know, kind of, he saved her again and she's kind of, as soon as you saw her love again. Well, that's it. He went back to get her even though he knew she might. Yeah, which is, which is probably fair enough. That would have probably softened her heart, I think, on the whole thing. That's karma. Yeah, so it's, um, I think that is perfectly justified. There's no real issue, but, it would have been an interesting ending if it became a bit of a duel like, with the two of them. Or what if she got away and the next film had been she was hunting Bond? Yeah, like I think that would be a fantastic. Uh... But he still loved her, and it was really <laughs> painful. Like I would love a film, one of the Bond films, to do have the courage to make the female love interest or counterpart of one film become the villain of the next one due to some justified reasons. I think that'd be pretty interesting. That was a slight disappointment because usually in the Bond films, Bond saves the day and then he still has one last fight. Someone will come, usually one of the unrelated henchmen, for absolutely no reason, well. comes back to attack him. So I thought, that's what she was going to be. I thought it was Guy Hamilton starting. Yeah. And I think... I thought it obviously just shows you when a different director they changed that up. But I do think Jaws did that, but it was all mushed in with or mixed in with where um, his boss got killed because it all happened so close together. Because Jaws, Jaws did the classic thing where he was no longer being paid, no, there was no organization left, and Jaws continued the fight. Mm-hmm. Well, all you saw was him swimming, and you weren't sure if he was swimming towards Bond or whether he was swimming to. To get away. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if Jaws was just this relentless force that Bond was constantly... He was just always making his way towards Bond on foot, swimming, <laughs> whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And Bond had a track and he's like, oh, he's 15 miles away, I better move, you know? Go somewhere. It's terrifying, actually. An like endless, that. endless... It's almost like, um, what's its face from Resident Evil? I was just thinking that Nemesis. Yeah, just it's always coming. Yeah. The Nemesis game is essentially... The third game is just essentially you're being pursued by this relentless foe throughout the entire game. And his music is terrifying and you know it's coming room, you can still hear his music as he's walking around the area and it's terrifying that's a kind of like that when you were trying to describe Jaws like that <laughs> it's kind of getting that feel do you know my, my mate Adam came up with an idea for a horror story one time about a bouncy ball that would, would chase you all the time and it would always be like bouncing against your house or against your window and like you, it would drive you mad like you couldn't get away from it did he have a bad experience with a bouncy ball uh, no it was just I, I <laughs> just when it was well, I, I said to him try and make a random object scary but he was saying imagine you like you you were going insane you flew 5,000 miles away to like some little cabin and this you just knew this ball was bouncing its way towards you like across the sea or whatever like finding a way to get to you you know no matter where you went I don't know how to creatively segue from this to, <laughs> so, to Stromberg but I think so, we, we should talk about the main villain again yeah. well he was a little bit rotund so, so Stromberg loses Johnson like a ball point, so he employs a bouncy ball and <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, we'll go with that uh, Stromberg then what's, what's our thoughts on him as a villain main villain bit boring oh, yeah I, I really liked him I mean I've heard a few people say I, that like his personality or Sorry? 
Oh, sorry. I was just saying, the way you said that, I was saying, like, you just, you'd, you'd go and hang no, about no, with someone. Like, that's what I mean? why you're <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, you're Great right. guy. <laughs> Megalomania and taking over the world a lot, but once you get past that, he's a good lad. Yeah. All the Christian stuff, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he plays a mean game of chess. You know? <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> I don't know. I thought he was a wee bit boring. Like I, I, I kind of liked him. I, I, you know, I thought he had the end that he deserved because his end wasn't particularly exciting. I mean, yeah. he tried his daft thing with his fifteen meter long gun under the table or whatever it was, yeah. and then Bond shot him through his own gun. And it was just. And why didn't he get out of the chair? He didn't really. He wasn't very mobile, was he? Yeah. He was always eating. That's why. Yeah, he was a sort of villain. Unlike yeah, he was. Unlike um, say even like to Lisa Valis's Blofeld, he always stood behind the scenes and pressed buttons. Yeah. You know, I like, and it's funny. Remember, he, he ruthlessly kills the two guys that have, you know, done all this work for him. Um, the professor was a professor, Markovitz and Doctor, whatever his name is, are in the helicopter. Um, and it, you see when he presses the button to make the helicopter explode, it's like there isn't that one second delay you'd normally get. If a button, it's like as soon as he, his finger makes slight contact, the button is just, you know. And you you made the point like, why does he wait till out at sea to actually kill? Yeah, him? yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he made them believe he was going to kill them before because they sort of stop each other as they're getting in the shark lift. Well, there's the other thing. Bond doesn't get thrown down the tube through the lift because he's got his feet on either side, right? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. No, I guess, I mean, I I made the point, does Bond always stand in lifts like that? Just in case? How could he possibly have known? How could he possibly have well, known? I think he had an inkling that, that, that it's going to fall underneath him, so he has to try something and it somehow worked. You know what? The film just wanted him to survive. That's just that's the answer to that. Yeah, it could have been too. You would think he'd be too busy wearing the maybe poison gas coming in, like in diamonds are forever yeah. and that big. Imagine he did all the things at once. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he's holding his breath. He's got his legs out. I mean, what other what other measures could he take at the same time for all of the different possibilities inside the lift? What if the lift fell down the shaft? Yeah, I think you know, I, agree, um, I agree with what you said, but, you know, Stromberg's death thing was over too soon, and, you know, I don't understand how Bond can shoot down the long barrel of his, like, under-table gun, and it somehow kills him. But, yeah, it was over a bit too quick, um, but I, I liked Stromberg, and I think Kurt Jürgen's a real menace. He had a real kind of icy stare, the way, and he could his tone could suddenly change, and, and he could look like a genuine psycho. Like, when he's he's talking to Professor Markovitz and Dr. Metz, whatever his name is, and then he goes, I regret to inform you that a dangerous development is taking place. He's just, he's, he sees tone really shifting. And one of the cool things which they maybe could have made more of in the film, in the novel, well, in the novelization, there's a certain thing where if, if, um, Stromberg becomes angry, his eyes kind of swell up and he goes into this weird kind of shaking frenzy and his eyes go red. Even if you could see a, a slight element of that to show that sort of like, um, psychopath deformity, you know, some so that weak edge that, yeah, that weak edge because he just he seems like a really like he just seems like like say you're studying marine biology at uni and there was an old professor and he was the one you wouldn't want to have. Do you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. what he's like. See, a lot of people say <laughs> that. I mean, he's just like that. I bet he loads yeah. of people went to see the film and thought, God, he reminds me of professor so and so at uni. A lot of people say about Christatos who will get onto in for your eyes only, but yeah, he's not. He's not. See if you were. Asking the average person in your street, what's like the Bond uh, villains? Oh, it would be an old most? man with wispy hair. Well, I don't get. Yeah, it's, you know. I don't. I certainly don't think Carl Stromberg's one of the first one people think of. But do I'm you not, remember I the bit where he had a nice chat with Bond about about? marine biology before he knew that Bond was Bond as well because he hadn't asked Jaws yet. So as far as he was concerned, he'd met this guy and they just had a wee 
a wee chat about the fish for a minute or two. Know, it was good because he tested Bond's nose like a lot of these. Um, <laughs> and Bond, the thing is, Bond caught him out because Bond gave him the correct answer, and then he kind of he kind of unfolded his arms and went, and went, "Oh." He only gave him like I'm surprised he only gave him one question. I thought he'd given a point like that three or four different species. Like, oh, I know he happens to know that. Well, one. Mi six knew exactly what question he was going to ask and prepared Bond perfectly. You know, for I know. that. I know. That I precise say, though, question. Bond, Bond, just from the background he was from and studying Oxford, and that he did seem to know a bit about. You know, just a lot of everyday things like animals. Remember on, on Our Majesties, he knew that species of butterfly that M was looking at. I think just the background he's from. You can maybe see that somehow in that scene. But I think as well, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I, I love Bond um, going, you know, using aliases and when he, you know, he's in disguise or, or he's like pretending to be a different person. And there was a nice wee throwback and one of the Daniel Craig films, I think it was maybe Skyfall, it shows you, and you, know, you only see a brief glimpse and you maybe need a big schooner pause, but there's a fake ID with Daniel Craig's face and it says Robert Sterling is the name and that's the of course the alias oh. that Bond uses when he's he's posing as a yeah. marine biologist. I like how he still pronounce, says his name the same way with if it was Bond James Bond, it's Sterling. <laughs> Sterling. Robert, Robert Sterling. Sterling. <clears throat> Did they say Bond James Bond in this film? No, there was every other Bond stereotype, but it was said by Triple X in the bar. She said the shake had not stirred. How did they know? How did they know this, right? I suppose maybe she... All spies maybe... know who James Bond is. I think, yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's the joke of the films, isn't it? Yeah. Essentially. Despite so... being a spy. There yeah, was another one as well where... Whatever his name is. I can, do you know, I can never get this villain's name right. Stromberg. Stromberg. Why can't I remember that, right? Maybe think that's Stromberg, what I mean. But, um, he doesn't seem to be one of the most memorable. He though. says something like, Good evening, Mr. Bond. I I've been expecting yeah. you, right? First of all, was it even evening? I mean, to me, it looked like it was the middle of the goddamn <laughs> well, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was lighter. Yeah, and on that as well, <laughs> it seems to be like a stereotypical um, line that people have ingrained in their head, even if they're not big Bond fans. You know, Mister Bond, I've been expecting you. But that, to me, I think that was the only instance in the entire series that any villain said it, and he's not a villain that a lot of people remember either. Do you think in the James Bond universe, MI six just regularly keeps an eye on billionaires? That they're all, they all seem to be just. I think Mad. they probably do that in real life as well, to be fair. I, I think the they most would, suspicious I think ones. The ones that kind of come out of nowhere, like Stromberg, because that's what I was saying earlier, because you don't, there's no clue as to why he became a billionaire, whereas, in, and it says that in the novelization, and it gives, it told you how he made his fortune. It's like, I know we don't like to talk about it, but Toby Stevens' character in Die Another Day, he was another millionaire or billionaire that just came out of nowhere, and that's why MI6 were keeping tabs on him. Do you think that, uh, the the Bond villains are in a sequence where each time the richest man in the world is killed by Bond, the next one it's his turn. <laughs> it seems that way, doesn't There's it? There's a committee somewhere <laughs> that decides which billionaire becomes the next villain. <laughs> it's like, right, okay, Doctor No's been killed, now it's you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, He's been knocked out of it for a few weeks, he's a holiday, it's you. Yeah, it's like these guys. Was a Goldfinger? He was the richest man in the world as well. Yeah, you think they could be the ones just enjoy their money, but no, I I want to wreak havoc with Our Majesty's government and send some agent after me so I can kill them. Exactly. Maybe it's about Bill. Like, what do you get for the man who has everything? Maybe they buy them like the James Bond experience. Like, like (laughs) they have to contend with Bond as a puzzle. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's that's like the only thing that gives yeah gives life meaning. It's like one of those like where we would go and skydive or something or, or climb a mountain or whatever. They're like, I oh, would get Bond after you. That would make your pulse beat a bit faster. But uh, there was there was something else that I was thinking about here. I was going to say to do with oh yeah, the megalomaniac thing, right? With Bond, right now, it's like FBI agents or whatever. Like they have to build profiles of serial killers that like they can recognise 
if someone's a serial killer based on behavior and things like that and profiling and, th- and stuff and and even if they haven't caught the killer they can eventually work out who they are based on patterns and things like that or what the what type of pathology they have when i was looking at bond going through um the layer with the fish in it and all that, and he's going round. He's obviously got to the lair and he's walking round it, and, I, and Bond's looking about. It and I was just thinking, how many movies now has Bond had to, at some point, end up inside an incredibly elaborate place like this? And at some point, he must just know what the hell is going to happen. Like he must realize at that point, oh god, this is going to be big. It's going to be some sort of enormous battle. This person's going to be a psycho. Do you know what I mean? That's his way of. He eventually realizes that they've built themselves like a throne. Yeah, reading the surroundings, the more uh-huh. crazy the villain's lair is, the bigger a fight he's got on his hands. Yeah, I yeah. wonder if he even is is surprised now when he's walking around. He's like, it's kind of like nonchalant, like you know, like I seen all these crazy places. It's like, yeah, you've built this. Huh? I'm very impressed. Yeah, I mean, anyone else before. would walk into a room that was basically a giant fish tank and go, "Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. what you've done with the place is uh-huh. incredible." He was like. Yeah, he's yeah, just like, oh yeah, it's just another one of you megalomaniacs, yeah. you know. But that's the thing as well. If I was born by the time this film came out and I'd been through these adventures, I'd be thinking I was in the Truman Show because I'd be thinking, God, every single year this thing happens where there's a girl, there's a a, a crazy guy, there's like escape pods with beds in them, there's, do you know what I mean? There's this weird fucking freaks coming after me with metal teeth or weird hats or. Uh, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and he must think at some point. Oh well, I needn't panic too much because I'm always okay. Because <laughs> yeah. they won't. Because they won't kill me right away. That they'll just right. what chat yeah. me for a bit, and I'll get my end away a few times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, fantastic. Um, is there anything else you guys want to discuss before we get to the rating? I think we have to mention the iconic Lotus underwater sub. Oh yeah, car. Yeah, um, submarine yeah. thing. Yep. Which was I didn't I, I didn't know that this was I knew it was a Bond thing I didn't know this was a film that it was linked to, so I was I was really happy when I saw that that just and it is it was a really nicely done scene as well because obviously the the underwater scene in Thunderball we agreed was it looked great but it went on too long and it was a bit dull all the underwater stuff in this film every second of it was valid. Every second of it was worthwhile. It deserved to be in the film. Yeah, it was very yeah. tight. Uh, yeah. yeah, and not just in that, in that scene, but in a lot of the scenes, excellent model work, you know. Um, there's a good yeah. mixture of model work and kind of shots of real things. There's clearly like a, a real submarine or two and a real helicopter and, you know, great stunt driving as well when the Lotus is actually driving on dry land. But, you know, there's the, the detailed model work, which, you know, became synonymous with the Bond series, at least till well into the bros, probably into the late bros and even in the Craig era a wee bit and led, you know, mainly the dead men's. It was out of this world, you know, and the, the big, um, interior of the tanker. There was only one shot out of the loads of shots that actually looked like it. You know, uh-huh. looked, like a to- looked like a toy, but that was it, just once. But yeah, you know. Yeah, I think the sport. Talking again um, about the Lotus. I mean, that was the car of that time. That was that was like the DB five was in, in Goldfinger, but that was like the seventies version. It so fitted Bond and you know Roger Moore's Bond. This this real kind of low pro- profile sports car. You know that. That was another reason I think this is like the nineteen seventies Goldfinger, and I think in some ways it's a superior film to Goldfinger. I mean, the the thing that's that I do notice more and more with Goldfinger is Bond's ineptness and his reliance on other people. He's constantly getting recaptured towards the the latter half of the film, but you know Bond's a bit more in, in control in this one. You know, 
But yeah, the Lotus, um, it's just, it's just so iconic. That's for a lot of, you know, casual fans. That'll be, you know, an enduring <laughs> image, this underwater car. Yep. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a good point you made there about the, the sort of comparing it to gold. Goldfinger, actually, I think you might be right on that. That's, that's, I probably can agree on that. Anything else? Obviously, uh, we've like sort of mentioned Ken Adams sets. I would say on well, the special effects, I think some of them were, mm. were really out of this world as well. That oh, the final battle, the explosions and stuff like that. The three militaries fighting. Brilliant. There was, I mean, I think it was by far the best sort of mass fight scene yeah but if anything since the volcano yeah you only have twice the, that was again um, where that it felt like that but it was it was better than that it was um, that yeah, tend to hunt yeah, yeah special effects way better even some of the more low key stunts like when Jaws goes through the window of the train Bob Simmons the stuntman who I mean he doubled Bond right back to you know Doctor No Sean Connery because they they always said he looked a bit like Sean Connery but anyway he was he basically had Jaws' suit on so he was he was meant to be Jaws and he he literally dived through a plate glass window so plate glass if anyone doesn't know it's like kind of thin like papery type of glass but it looks like real glass he dived through the window man mm. it's incredible brilliant yeah fantastic stunt Yep. Yeah, I really impressed. Um, I think we've covered most areas. Is there anything? Have else? we spoken about Anya Triple X as a character and how good she was? Yeah. Because for me, she oh, was. Yeah. I think she was the. I've got to just say the best female sort of protagonist, female character of the series so far. She was. Wait, 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 wait. What yep. about Our Majesty's Tracy? No, you know what? See, she just right the way through. She was properly kick-ass, and she. Yeah, she just kept getting one over Bond. I mean, yeah. the, the one scene where Bond was being a bit of a dick was um, in the, the Egypt scene where they were trying to escape from Jaws and she was trying to start the van. Oh, yeah. And yeah, she, kept, she kept messing up and stalling and he kept making all these sort of really patronising comments. You know, oh, he, he, I, was, I was waiting for it, wait for it, wait for it. Oh, women drivers. There we go. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, then, I picked up on then that. Then she right. banged the do. van into reverse, squished jaws, and then turned to him and went, shaking, not a start. Yeah. Ha. yeah. That's what I love. Yeah. Bunsen went up and shit between the two of them. Yeah. Like, um, there's bits he's in control, there's bits she's in control, and there's that constant battle between the two of them, which I think is really good. It is odd how Bond, you'd think he'd want to get away quickly, but he's, he's deliberately pissing about with the keys. She's yeah. like, give me the key, and he's I just didn't get that. It. It's, uh, yeah, it's slightly maybe not the best. It could have, I think. I just wish he didn't say women drivers. I think, I think if he'd maybe took the piss out of her in a, because she was a Russian agent. Or something. Do you know what I mean? If there was some other angle to it, if there was something like every female driver uh-huh. trope. Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was just like it was again lazy. I guess a lazy screenwriting. Then I yeah. feel like it's, it's one of the. Main it was trying to find conflict with her, and it was doing it in a lazy, boring way. Any man in the street. This is meant to be. Any guy in a, working in any factory or any standing in any bar would say something like that. This is supposed to be James Bond, for God's sake, the that's man of the, charm. and That's the audience they're yeah. trying to connect with, with these little moments. But the funny thing about it, do you know what the funny thing about it is? In those days, women in the audience probably would have laughed as well. I was watching a thing with uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, you know, aware of him? Yeah, Hunter yeah, S. Thompson. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was doing an interview about, um, he'd spent time with a biker gang. This was in the 60s or 70s, I think it was. And uh, one of the biker gang members had beaten his wife. And Hunter S. Thompson's talking about it, and the biker guy comes into the interview and says, "It's my business. It's my it's my woman. Uh, it's none of your business." And everyone in the audience laughs. Now, 
when you're watching that, you get this rare view into the, the world was just completely different back then. People would have laughed in an audience at oh, someone yeah, beating yeah, their wife. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy. Like driver jokes were the style yeah, of the time. Yeah, well, I don't know. But it doesn't mean that it's it, it's still irritating. Do you know what I mean? Yes, but, oh, it is absolutely. But it's just that was just an aside to say I was quite shocked. I was quite shocked by what people did find funny in the sixties and seventies. Like it went way beyond what I would have imagined. Do you know what I mean? People yeah. people laughed at things like hitting your wife. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like we, they thought that was funny. We don't understand that anymore. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that explains a lot of the women being hit back in the previous Bond films. It was kind of just it was a done thing. Yeah, then, keep your old lady in line, kind of thing. And like that's what that people said. Have changed. Like that's a slight remark that it's, it's where it's dated. But I mean. The, those things, you know, forcing a woman into sex and things like that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, of, yeah, yeah. Turning, yeah. you know, like that sort of stuff. That stuff has completely dissipated by this this era of, of Roger Moore's Bond. Do you know what's scary about it? It was, a, it was probably seen at that time. I mean, what we saw on the screen in that movie was tame compared it's, to what was probably going on out in the world. I just saw something there. Sorry to digress a bit, but yeah, um, the, the scene... And uh, for years, actually, um, I don't know if this was me um, hearing that line from when I was about four years old, and just the dialogue I didn't find is clear when he says the woman driver's line. I just think he said, with the Travers, I don't know what the Travers is. But anyway, like, see, I think, you know, when they first go in the back of the van, like, it's like Bond kind of chases Jaws away from the Majava Club. He's trying to catch up with Jaws after he realises he's gone away with the microfilm, and Jaws is posing as this like mechanic with a van and Bond just hops in the back of the van slams the, the back door Anya comes in slams the door Jaws drives away and they have a chat in the back of the van so, do you not think they, that Jaws might have noticed them getting in the van or do they know he knows like, Jaws was talking listening loudly. to yeah. yeah yeah I know he was I, yeah. I wonder did they realise that even if there wasn't somehow a microphone device would they not think oh, that he might actually know we're in the back of the they van weren't, they weren't being subtle no you're right I think that just little section of the film is where the, the sort of writing got a bit silly. Um, I think we covered it earlier with the tonal shift of the music and things like that. But uh, yeah, overall, it's uh, I think the film was was great. I think we're good to move on to the rating. Is there anything else you got you want to talk about? Or you just no? Okay, uh, I'm gonna go first then and say this. I yep, as it's probably already. It's quite obvious from what we've said. I really enjoyed this film. I think this is definitely, absolutely, so far, the best Roger Moore film. And I suspect maybe his best film going um, out of the seven he did. Um, I actually think it's better. It's the best Lewis Gilbert film that I've seen um, so far. It's better than You Only Have Twice. And I think Ken Adam is the main, is the MVP of this film. I think his sets and um, are, are just some of the best. It was... It was they were lavish, um, right from the very beginning, and there was so many different places. It was fantastic. The the action, you know, we didn't mention the car chase section. It was fantastic, um, the way it was shot. It was a kind of frantic scene, um, uh, and I just loved mostly um, the performances and and the lack of sleaziness in the writing from the previous films. I would. I'm struggling. I'm close to giving us a five. Actually, um, I actually think I'm going to go. Well, we've introduced half stars, so I'll give it a four and a half. But yeah, if it was on the old rating system, I would have given this a low five. So yeah, that's my rating. Uh, Gordon, you next. I'm going for a five. One of my favourite bonds of all time, and like I said, Rogers at top form. This is like his gold finger. Um, he's. 
he's at his absolute peak at this point, I think. I loved him in this film. I, I really loved Barbara Bakken as well. I think she was a, a great, um, you know, ally. The, the constant one-upmanship between the two of them, the parallels throughout between the KGB mm. and MI6, both searching for missing nuclear submarines, I really enjoyed. Some tremendous stunt work. Um, good, perf- you know, smaller-scale performances, but, you know, M and Q, again, this was Bernard Lee's second-last film, um, as M. Um, stunning sets. I find it hard to pick faults of this film. I really do. And you know, it's I'm gonna bring up just tiny points, which it's hardly. It feels like hardly even worth bringing them up. But just for the sake of showing that there are you know slight things I don't like. I mean, okay, yeah, that music with the van in the desert that was totally out of place. You know, um, the way when when Jaws um, bites Fekesh in the pyramid to kill him, like Fekesh doesn't put up any kind of fight. And just kind of, it's like the bite just kills him. You know, without. Any reaction, you know, but, but that's nothing really. That's nothing. Um, but see, plot wise, I'll say also, um, the whole kind of Stromberg ultimately is sending one nuclear missile from what using one of the subs nuclear missiles to destroy Moscow and the other to destroy New York. And then he's saying, A new era will begin in a new world beneath the sea. But I wonder how he gets to that point of a new world starting under the sea. I mean, mean, you can understand, like, the, you know, the, 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 right, okay, you can understand, like, the, the British and Soviet governments thinking each side had maybe potentially, um, launched the missiles each other. But would they really be that point? Because Bond, it'd already been arranged for Bond to go out and find the La Paris. So they'd already become allies with Russia. So that's what I don't, or sorry, what I mean is America and the US, but even so, now the Americans were elected to Strongburg in the La Paz, I don't get, really get how he gets to the point, you know, this would somehow start a new race under the sea, but I did like I did like him as a villain. We love sharks in Bond, don't we, guys? We love sharks. There was great sharks. There was great underwater footage like Thunderbolt, other sea creatures, and just great set pieces. He moved a lot between different countries. It's, it's almost the perfect Bond film. It, and again, just if it could be tightened up somewhat, see if they had made it a bit more like a novelization, a bit more kind of spy world like, somehow a bit darker, and made it kind of more on the lines of Majesty's was, um, then it would be maybe like the perfect Bond film. But I mean, I love this film as a kid and I love it now. And, you know, I will probably watch it about um, 500 more times before I leave this air. There you go. Well, that's, that's not a bad critique. <laughs> uh, Steve. Thank you, Steve. I'm going to go four and a half for this one. Um, I really, really enjoyed this one after the, I mean, the uh, previous film, Man with the Golden Gun, I, I gave that a kind of straight down the line three because it just, it didn't, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. It just didn't grip me. Whereas this, I was, I was hooked every second, every shot. And the fact that it looked as good as it as it as it felt as it was exciting massively helped his case as we've as we've pointed out the cinematography the sets it looked brilliant the use of music the use of audio sort of mute lack of music as well as the actual music it maybe loses a bit for the the dodgy seventies disco stuff and the the bizarre big band carry on stuff as the van was driving through the deserts <laughs> but as a the same with the, the, the plot, the storyline that was with this one. It wasn't confused. It was understandable. It was epic. Um, I enjoyed the characters. Having a really kick-ass female protagonist just give a sort of massive shot in the arm. And I just I found it really enjoyable. Um, every second of this film was worthwhile. There was no wasted space in it. 
and it's it's very difficult, as Gordon said, to particularly fault it. I'm only, I suppose, holding back from giving it a five because I'm still kind of on this journey of Bond, and I feel like I can't give a five until I've seen more and kind of go back and boost it. So this is one that, when we go, obviously, at the very end of this uh, Bond journey, we're going to go back and rate all the films and stuff like that, and there are a few films that might bump up, some that might bump down. This is one that might potentially bump up to a five, might potentially come out top. But for now, I'm sticking with 4.5. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty much with you on all of that. Fran, last and least. <laughs> Charming. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's not going to be very long, to be honest. Uh, four and a half, of which the half star is deducted. I'm not going to say all the good things. I've said all the good things already. But the half star is deducted for simply um, the the lazy writing aspects, of which there wasn't very many um, instances. But I just, you know... I'm really in. I like writing. I like the theory of writing. I like how stories are constructed. The idea of the hero's journey, the idea of less is more, which goes back to um, Stephen Barry and I, perhaps one of our old heroes from high school, or a, teach, a teacher who taught us creative writing. Um, it's a big deal to me when it, when writing is lazy. I just I think it's the high, it's the highest crime when you're doing something for movie or television or you know it's it's the high crime because everything else falls apart. Uh, other than that, it was great. There yeah, well, um, sorry, I was just going to say, dude, I brought this up during the film. So Shane Rimmer, the guy who played Captain Carter, the he was the like the captain of the 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 USS Wayne, so the submarine that Bond joined, the American sub that Bond came aboard at the end. I thought actually him and Bond, he was a great ally, good chemistry between him and Bond. Now the character, the, well, the actor Shane Rimmer, who I think he died in quite recent years, he was in two previous Bond films. Did you guys recognise him from them at all? Just a little bit of trivia I thought I'd throw out there. He was in, I'll tell you, he, pl- he was in You Only Live Twice. Um, he was just a, quite fairly brief um, on a computer monitor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> remember, remember when... How the hell did I not see that? <laughs> remember, and then um, I think it's when the, the, it's kind of the, blo- the rocket, the Blowfields hijack blows up. And he's like, the enemy has blown up. He is then he's in Diamonds Are Forever and he based against a tiny part, he hands like some bit of paper to Willard White in that office. But I just he's quite oh. distinctive. He's a good actor, like he's he was in Batman Begins actually. Gordon, do not write any of this in your dating profile. <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling you. Party trick. I can identify the captain from this particular film on the monitor of another. I feel like uh, we have to add to this trivia. <laughs> anyway, I'm teasing because I'm Are like this guys, with Star Trek, uh, honestly. Yeah, I'm like, right, episode 27, I Captain like Kirk does the safe combination code. You know what I mean? I can tell you the code. I think we so should just uh, as bad. Gordon should have his own little Bond trivia. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what's funny? It's because I remembered he was in that, and then. Once I've actually brought in the podcast, I then remembered actually he's only in it for a few seconds in each film. But how many seconds precisely? That is the question. Yeah. Is it 2.75? But again, again, that's just going back to how many times I've seen these films. But yeah, I mean, the main reason I brought it up was to highlight I thought there was good chemistry between him and... Yep. And Bond, you, know, but you can't say that, that about all the allies. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in with the crossover trivia for Star Trek. General Gogol was in an episode of Next Generation, so there you go, and he appeared for the first time in this film. And what also what I found out on Wikipedia um, about that Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode. Yep, Erman Bashir. 
the spy who loved based me. on this film yeah uh, also adding to the tri- we'll all bring our own trivia to this podcast hope you've got yours ready Steve um, Jeremy Bullock uh, Boba Fett of course was in this film it's the Star Wars connection yeah, yeah, yeah it's which fantastic. Gordon I think you you pointed out didn't you when we were watching the film yeah yeah. but it wasn't it was somebody told me about it and then I'm telling you guys about it and now we're telling everyone else yeah. I know the last thing as well I, know, I read on Wikipedia the font for the title sequence apparently this uh, oh we're getting to fonts now yeah. apparently, apparently yeah. I'm extreme because yeah. I noticed <laughs> <laughs> what I'm about to say is really important right <laughs> the font is the typeface is there it's comic sans every single Bond film going forward this is the one the template they use they liked it so much so, right, that if it looks familiar it's because you've seen it in every Bond film afterwards there that is you know, fantastic God, God, I used to tell God. people I, you know I've done it to myself as well right but I used to tell people with pride that I was on this podcast to maybe show them and I don't know if I can anymore <laughs> we'll get to the end and they'll be thinking delete his number by the way listen and they're I, talking about fonts listen don't be ashamed to be a geek honestly I, I'm not ashamed to be a Bond geek there we go with that we are ending this <laughs> podcast I feel like that's a final <laughs> end it's about ended on a font it's brilliant <laughs> I know I know yeah yeah it's uh, yeah <laughs> ironically there are no words alright then uh, thank you guys for turning up and we will be back we will return for for your eyes only you get that? no it's not no I got it that's only because the film says uh, James Bond returning for your eyes only of course he returns in Moonraker next uh, 1979's Moonraker pretty certain that's the year it came out pretty much as a reaction to the popularity of Star Wars and the space opera Uh, so James Bond, the course correction with that. But uh, yeah, we will get to that next time. And well, bye for now. See ya. See ya.